Well, you know that feeling when someone's sharing their success with you, where they're sharing their pinnacle moment, their high achievement, and it doesn't quite work for you? You know, you're having the opposite experience. Like, for example, when you took a math test and they're like, hey, I got an A, how did it go for you? And you're like, hey, <laughs> not so good. Or for any runners with us, okay, okay, I heard one, so they're there. Uh, maybe you're a runner out there. For us runners, I call myself that, whether you like it or not. Uh, for us runners, you could be like, man, I had my long run this week, it felt great. I went out for 13 miles, I feel fantastic. I set a personal record. How are you, how's your training going? It's like, well, I uh, broke my foot, so <laughs> not good. Won't be running for a while. You guys know what I'm talking about where you're, they're sharing their joy with you and you are stuck in the opposite experience because you are going nowhere or backwards. Man, those are some of the worst moments to be trapped in. But you know what's worse than those moments? Is when it's not an accident, when they don't stumble into it, but when someone weaponizes their experience and your failure to make you feel even worse. Right? It's not like, oh, you, I got a good grade on my math test and you didn't. It's like, hey, you didn't just get a bad grade on the math test, but you don't know anything and you're not worth anything and you're never going to get a good grade. Or it's like when they beat your soccer team, they didn't just beat your soccer team. They're like, hey, we crushed you and it's your fault and you're never going to be a winner, nor is anyone who's associated with you. Have you guys been in a moment like that where someone has weaponized your failure against you? And maybe it was you doing that to yourself. Because I think we all have that voice in our head sometimes that is highlighting our failures amidst someone else's successes. Either way, I can tell you we've all had stories like that where we're caught in suffering and we see people around us with all the joy and we don't know how to experience it because we're trapped in something else. Well, the question for us today is where and how does God enter into those moments? When we are trapped in suffering and we can't experience the joy we see around us, how does God enter in? And before we launch into our story, I want to actually give you your first note, and that's this. Suffering can leave us feeling alone and powerless. You know, today we're going to get the chance to dive into the first chapter of 1 Samuel and see how God enters into the suffering of a woman and changes everything. There's going to be more to the story than suffering leaves us feeling alone and powerless, but that's often a fact, and we have to start there. But I hope you don't stay there. I hope today we can bring some hope to that suffering as well. Well, we're in a series called The Chronicles of the Kings, where we're walking through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles in an attempt to bring some uh, truths to our lives, to learn from the history uh, and not repeat the mistakes they've made. And today, we get to start it off in Samuel 1. Because last week, Chris gave us an overview, right? He gave us the movie pitch where David and his army are coming and, and achieving victory. There's action, there's intrigue, there's war, and, and whatever else you want to describe. It's a movie, right? Get excited. Well, this week, we have a different beginning. You see, the book of 1 Samuel begins not with a battle, not with political intrigue, but with a man and his two wives and an empty womb. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, or pull out your Bible app and join me there. It begins like this. There was a man, a certain man, of Ramathim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkina, the son of Jeroham, 
the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite, or Ephrathite, excuse me. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, and to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You know, Hannah is in just the kind of situation that we described earlier, but it's not with something trivial like a math test or even a sports team. This is something serious. This is her inability to have children. She's married to a man who clearly loves her, but doesn't really get it. And in fact, in fact, probably because she's unable to have children is why he had to take on a second wife to produce an heir. And so not only is she unable to conceive, but she has this fact lorded over her by her rival, Paniah. Just as with Rachel and Leah, uh, with Jacob, just as with Hagar and Sarah and Abraham, this idea of two women warring over one man trying to produce heirs is a theme in Scripture. This ends in trouble all the time. And we see the same tension here with Hannah as she's constantly reminded of her failure by this other woman. Well, to make matters worse Hannah, Hannah's worse, Hannah is clearly so distraught she can't even eat. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment, but I know what it's like where you're just so torn up about something, it's hard to even put food in your stomach. And yet she's met with a husband who, who doesn't get it, right? What does he say? He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? Like, he, he doesn't get it. This is not the thing to say to someone who's in the middle of hardship. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we've been in these moments, right, where we're going through something hard and someone says something like, it's okay, count your blessings. Or like, cheer up, things will turn around. And you're like, you don't get it. You don't understand what I'm going through. Like, yeah, if I had stubbed my toe, you could be like, cheer up, it'll get better. But if you're a woman in this society waiting for a child and unable to conceive, than saying, cheer up, it gets better, or saying, you have me, is that not enough? That kind of misses the point, doesn't it? See, it's not that her husband doesn't love her. It's about the dream of being a mother, something that's withheld from her. It's about the things that this other woman, Paniah, says to her. It's about her loneliness in a culture where motherhood is elevated and children are essential. It's about her place in society and her family. It's about what it says about her, and it's about the fact, why would God Withhold this from me. Does anyone resonate with that kind of suffering? Well, when we're in a moment like that, platitudes are not going to cut it. Even truth from Scripture can be hard. When someone says, all things work together for good for those that love God and according, called according to his purpose, that's true. That's in here. But that is not a verse to be weaponized to someone who's in suffering. 
sometimes they need something better than you to throw a verse at them. And the question for us today is what does it actually look like for God to meet us in that suffering? What does it look like for Hannah? Well, I'm going to tell you the truth, that if you're someone who's in the midst of suffering, you might leave this message saying, Dan doesn't get it. You might sit here and say, Dan, you don't understand what it's like to suffer, not like what I'm going through. And that might be true. <laughs> I might not get it. No pastor and staff might get it. But God understands. And whether or not it feels like I get it, I think he has a message for you tonight. And so, as we dive into the prayer of a woman who's trapped in this suffering, let's see what message God might have for us. Let's continue here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 with verse 9. It says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall ever touch his head. Have you had a moment like this one? Where you're praying to God and you're begging for him to give you what you need. Where you're making promises, where you're saying, God, whatever it takes, I'll do it. Just help me, save me, show up, give me this thing. I've had some of these moments. And the truth is, some of them worked out, God answered, and I got what I was asking for. Others, I was met with, with silence, right? I had to wait to see the situation play out. And others, I didn't get what I wanted. You know, even for my mostly easy life, I've had times where I was in this situation. And I can say we don't always get the answer that Hannah gets, but there's something essential for us to take away regardless. Whether God gives us the answer that we want or another, he sees us. He sees us in our need and in our moment. And that is something that we have to start with if we're going to get through those answers that aren't what we asked for. And so that's your second blank here, that God sees us in our sorrow. He hears us in our prayers, and he meets us in our deepest need. And so while we don't always get the answer that Hannah gets, it doesn't mean that God doesn't see us. In fact, he sees us in a way that pastors can't see us, that leaders can't see us, that mentors can't see us, that our husbands and wives can't see us, that our best friends can't see us. God sees. And this is true whether we get what we want or not, that he always meets our deepest need. Let's see what that looks like for Hannah before we turn to ourselves. Continuing in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, and as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you've made to him. 
And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, we could spend a lot of time here on Eli and on the state of worship in Israel. The fact that Eli looks at a distraught woman in prayer and says, are you drunk? Probably speaks to how bad things were. Either he's expecting that, or he's not a very good priest and doesn't know what's going on here. But regardless, if Eli does one thing right, he joins her in his priestly duty. He joins her in her desire to see God act in this prayer. And Hannah's response is that she feels seen. This partnership with the priest let her know that God hears this prayer. And so she feels seen, she feels heard, she puts her hope in the Lord. And then what? We don't know what Hannah expects. It doesn't tell us in here what's going on in her heart and in her mind. We don't know if she's going on saying, God, whatever you choose is fine, or if she's like, I'm going to get what I asked for. It doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that she is confident that God's going to provide. She really hopes that the son she's prayed for will be the answer to her prayer. And I highlight that fact that we don't know is because we don't always get the son that is prayed for. We don't always get the husband or the wife that we pray for. We don't always get the job that we pray for, the healing that we pray for, the miracle that we pray for. Sometimes the miracle that we get is the strength to endure, the strength to find hope and joy in the Lord despite the suffering continuing. Sometimes the miracle is finding joy. The hope that Hannah had and the hope that I can offer you today is not that you're going to get the answer you're looking for when you seek the Lord. The hope that I can offer you is that he sees you in whatever your suffering is, whatever your moment is, and whatever your deepest need is, that God sees you. Uh, as I was reading this passage, the words of Hannah stuck in my mind. She said, oh, Lord of hosts, if you will Indeed, look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. This prayer of a lonely and afflicted woman concerning her child or a need for a child reminded me of another lonely and afflicted woman and a child. Another woman who was caught in the tension of sharing a marital bed. In Genesis chapter 16, Hagar, having had a child or trying to have a child with Abraham, in a desperate attempt to, uh, to fill Sarah's barren womb, they decide to use this servant, Hagar, and she flees from the situation into the wilderness, knowing that she's pregnant and things had gotten bad between her and Sarah. And she flees, and God finds her there. And she, he says to her to return home and bear a son because the Lord has listened to your affliction. What does she say in response? If you look at Genesis chapter 16, you'll find these words. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Just as God saw Hagar, a woman with child in the wilderness, caught in affliction and suffering, so Hannah pleased with God to see her in her affliction and suffering. And God does. 
So whatever your need is, whatever your problem is, whatever suffering you're carrying or the suffering you're looking at in the world around you, know that God sees it and he sees you. And may that knowledge be the first step toward joy, whatever the answer that God gives to your prayer. For Hannah, <laughs> the answer is not very long in coming. If we continue here in 1 Samuel, we see uh, in verse 19, it says, Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked the Lord for him, or I have asked for him from the Lord. And so over the course of time, Samuel, or Samuel grows up, Hannah weans him, and she brings him back to that very place where she met Eli, and he asked if she was drunk. The very place she made this vow before God. And she says this to Eli. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Hannah brings her child back and gives him back to God, the one who provided this child in the first place. She does something that's not that different from what my family and I got to do earlier in this very service with the dedication of my daughter, Auden. We got to acknowledge that our little girl is a gift from God, that we get to care for her for a little while, but she's not ours to own, she's his. And while God might not do with her what I want him to, the things that I would choose, in the end, his way is best. And I can find joy in knowing that he, he has her in his hands much more than she's in mine. And like Hannah, our response to that truth is to praise God is to thank him that he's a God worthy of praise. Yes, for the gift of Auden, I am so grateful that she's my daughter. But more than that, I praise him for who he is and for what he's done. And that's what Hannah does at the beginning of chapter 2 in 1 Samuel. Or, yeah, excuse me, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah launches into this song and prayer praising the Lord's goodness. And what's fascinating about it is that there's only one mention of a child in this song. In the middle of it, she talks about having a barren womb and how the womb of the barren has been filled and the one who had many children is now barren. It's like a reversal of fortunes there. But that's the only moment. The rest is about God's goodness. The rest is about God's salvation. The rest is about God seeing his people and providing. It's not just about Hannah's need for a son. It's about God seeing the need of his people Israel. And she couldn't have known what God was going to do through Samuel. But in providing her with a son, he saw the need of the people for a priest that was better than Eli, a priest that would lead his people back to faith. God doesn't just provide for her, but for everyone through Samuel. She doesn't know that, and yet she is able to praise God for his salvation because she knows he's the God who sees her and that there's no one like him. She knows he's the God who saves and so Hannah's prayer 
God's salvation for her need caused her to exult in the Lord. Salvation causes exaltation. When we see God meet needs, when we see God save us from the things that we can't do on our own, there's only one response, and that's to praise him. But the Hannah, <laughs> she sees God's salvation is bigger than just her. Look how she ends her song here in 2 Samuel. She, uh, she says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and anoint the horn of his exalted, or his anointed. You know, in the weeks to come, we're going to see Israel's demand for a king and how that plays out. But before we get anywhere close to that, we see Hannah referencing a king and God's anointed. I didn't realize it at first, but a few resources I looked at pointed out the connections, and then I saw it, that Hannah's song here is strikingly similar to that of another young mother. If you were to open in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, you would see these words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Those are the words of Mary in something called the Magnificat. This is a moment where Mary, the mother of Jesus, praises God in response to the gift of a son, but it's not for this gift of life. It's not just for a child, but it's for God's sovereignty, for his power to reverse the human condition and for remembering his people and the promises he's made to them and for his mercy. Sometime go and read Hannah's song and then read Mary's and you'll see they're strikingly similar. Hannah's met need. Her salvation came in the form of a son from God, and humanity's met need came in the form of a son of God as well, through Jesus Christ. And so salvation came for Hannah in a son and for us in a son. Just as Hannah sang and rejoiced in the Lord's salvation, so Mary sang and rejoiced in the Lord's salvation. And so we too, whether we're trapped in suffering or in a season of joy, can rejoice in the salvation that God offers all of us. Because through Jesus, we can see the hope and the mercy of God. We can know that God sees us in our deepest need and provides what we truly need. The truth is that God sees us in those needs, and he magnifies himself through providing salvation. God sees us in our need, and he magnifies himself through meeting those needs. And it's not always the way that we want. Sometimes he lets us sit in suffering for a lifetime because of the results of that suffering. And what we can't understand is that is God's way of meeting our needs. You might not like me saying that, but that's what I believe is true, that God sometimes lets us be in suffering because he can provide for us through it. And God magnifies himself through that process. And so whether the salvation that we get comes through joy and hope, through the meeting or exceeding of our desires and expectations, or through the power of the cross to endure in the name of Jesus, God is bringing glory to himself through our trials and our suffering and our disappointment. Now, I can't promise what will happen when you call on the Lord as Hannah did. 
The Chronicles of the Kings doesn't give us that answer. But what I can promise is that when you call upon the Lord, he sees you. And there is hope. There is hope when we call upon the Lord. Do you believe that? Earlier in the service, Christy shared about how fear can hold us back. And sometimes fear is what keeps us from crying out to the Lord the way that Hannah did. I know that there are people here, people listening today that need that hope, that are trapped in things that are hard. And I would love to encourage you to do as Hannah did, to call upon Lord, because I believe there is hope on the other side of your need, whether it's because God is going to meet that need and bring you joy through that, or he's going to give you an avenue to joy even as that need seems to be unfilled because he's filling a bigger need for you. I believe there's hope on the other end of your prayers, the things that you've brought year after year and you're waiting for God to answer. I believe that he can and he will. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says these words in the book of John, chapter 11. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The God who sent Jesus, the God who is Jesus, hears your prayer. And so he offers hope for this life and for the life to come if we just call upon the Lord. And so the challenge that I'm going to leave you with is whatever you're in right now, do as Hannah did and call upon the Lord. He will meet you in that. If you want someone to pray with you, please send us a message. We would love to partner you with you in that. But whatever you do, don't leave this without bringing your cares to the Lord because he sees you and he loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the example of Hannah. Lord, for the example of someone who suffered for a long time, and who you provided for when the time was right. God, I pray for those who are in that suffering and wondering when or if you will provide. I pray that you would give them hope, a hope that endures despite suffering, that is rooted in your goodness and in the fact that you see them and you love them. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.